hand, we are going to be opening our Bibles to John chapter 1. Uh, please just raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and need to borrow one today. Also, if you happen to miss message notes on the way in, we want to get those into your hands. And so you can raise your hand and let us know because it has some important points on those message notes. Also, some spots for you to jot down some notes of your own if you like. And so we are continuing our message series verse by verse through the book of John. And we are inviting you to come and see Jesus Christ for yourself in all his glory and splendor. Amen? Amen. How many of you ever heard of a man by the name of Billy Graham? Most of us have. 1920s and 1930s, Billy Graham was growing up outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. His parents owned a dairy farm outside of Charlotte. His parents were devoted, committed Christians. But as a teenager, Billy Graham could barely make it to church once a week. He didn't care much for God. Wasn't very excited about church. But in May of the year 1934, his parents invited the local Christian men's group to come to their dairy farm and hold a prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting met, and it wasn't anything earth-shattering, but there was one prayer prayed by one local businessman at that prayer meeting that stuck in the minds and hearts of Billy Graham's parents. This one man at that prayer meeting in May of 1934 prayed this. He prayed that out of Charlotte, North Carolina, the Lord would raise up someone to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Billy Graham's parents were excited about that bold prayer, but they didn't have a clue that their teenage son who didn't even like church would be God's answer to that prayer. Well, a few months pass. It's the summer of 1934, and the local churches decided to bring Dr. Mordecai Ham as a traveling evangelist to hold revival meetings there in the city of Charlotte. And so Dr. Mordecai Ham came, and for 11 weeks, he preached in Charlotte in a tent. For 11 weeks, six days a week, morning and evening, Dr. Mordecai Ham preached. And for the first week, Billy Graham said, I don't want to go. The second week, he said, I'm not going. The third week, he said, I'm not going. In the fourth week, his parents were tired of inviting him to come to that revival meeting and him saying no. And the local Christian farmers that were trying to get him to go were tired of hearing him say no. But one farmer was very creative. He said, hey, Billy, can you do me a favor? I've got these teenagers from church that want to go to the revival meeting tonight, but I need someone to drive them. I'll let you borrow my old vegetable truck if you will let the teenagers pile in back and you drive them to the meeting. And so Billy wanted to do him a solid, so he says, fine. And so they hop in the back of the vegetable truck. Billy takes them to the revival meeting. He figures, well, while I'm here, I might as well go inside. He goes inside the tent, and he can't believe what he hears as Dr. Ham is preaching about heaven and hell and the grace of God and the judgment of God. He is hanging on to every word, and nothing could have kept him from coming back the next night and the night after that. And it wasn't too long, just a few days before his 16th birthday, that Billy Graham walked down the aisle and made the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And this on the screen is the actual decision card that he filled out that night, a few days before his 16th birthday. Over the next 80 years, Billy Graham went on to preach the gospel to more people than any other human being has ever preached to in person in the history of Christianity. He ended up preaching in 185 countries and territories to around 215 million people in person. And millions of lives were changed. And I just want to ask you this morning, are you grateful and thankful 
that there was a local businessman in Charlotte that was bold enough to pray that God would raise up out of Charlotte a man to go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. Aren't you thankful someone prayed that prayer? And Billy Graham was that answer to that prayer. And aren't you thankful for that old farmer that was clever enough to lend his old vegetable truck to Billy so he could make it to that revival meeting and hear the gospel? It's an amazing thing when God prompts people to invite others to come and see. And that's our focus today in John 1 as we finish the chapter together today as God is going to prompt the hearts of several men to go to family members and friends, inviting them to come and see Jesus Christ for themselves. Well, last week as we studied the middle section of John chapter 1, I mentioned to you that the gospel writer John the Apostle records for us some of the key details of the first week of Jesus' public ministry after his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. On day 1, beginning in verse 19 there in chapter 1, On day one, John the Baptist was still the man on top, and some of the religious leaders from Jerusalem came and asked him, who you are? Who are you, John? And and John made it clear, I'm not the Christ. I'm simply the one crying out, the Christ, the Messiah is coming. I'm simply the one that's making the road smooth ahead of the Christ so he can come in all his glory. So he says, I'm not the Christ. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. On day two, beginning in verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking toward him. And before Jesus could even say hello to John the Baptist, remember what John the Baptist said. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one I was talking about when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Then John testified to how the Holy Spirit had descended on Jesus at his baptism. God's clear sign that Jesus was both the Messiah and the Son of God. As we pick up in verse 35 this morning and finish the chapter, John will be sharing with us the third and fourth days of Jesus' ministry. The third and fourth days of his public ministry. And during these two days, Jesus is going to call the first five disciples to follow him. So once again, please pick up with me in John chapter 1. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Here we go, picking up in verse 35 of John chapter 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, in verse 35, it begins with those words, the next day. So it marks the third day of Jesus's first week of public ministry. John the Baptist was back at the Jordan River. Two of his disciples were with him. According to verse 40, one of the two disciples of John the Baptist was Andrew. The other is unnamed since in the gospel, according to John, John never refers to himself by name 
Our best guess is Andrew is with John. Our best guess is it's Andrew and John who were John the Baptist's disciples here in the latter part of chapter 1. And so there they are at the Jordan River with their mentor, with their rabbi, John the Baptist. And like disciples of other rabbis in Israel, they were there to listen to their rabbi and learn from their rabbi and assist their rabbi with his ministry duties. Andrew and John were John the Baptist's right-hand men. Whatever he needed, they were there to help. And in all likelihood, John the Baptist's ministry was so powerful in part because of his two right-hand men. Now look again at verses 36 and 37. It says, When John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Isn't that something? As we read through this passage, we don't normally stop and think about the significance of what happens in these couple verses. In John the Baptist's day, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of rabbis and spiritual mentors throughout Israel. So imagine if, if someone had gone up to Andrew and John and asked them this question. Of all those hundreds of rabbis throughout Israel, if you could handpick one rabbi to be your rabbi, which one would you pick? A day earlier? Absolutely. A day earlier, they would have hands down picked John the Baptist. They were following John the Baptist because he was their favorite rabbi. They were with John the Baptist because they wanted to be with John the Baptist more than any other rabbi. John the Baptist knew this. He knew that Andrew and John were following him because they wanted to follow him. They had chosen to follow him. He was, you could say, their number one draft pick. He was. He was their number one rabbi, which makes what he says here in verse 36 all the more remarkable. John certainly knew that as soon as he opened his big mouth and said, look, the Lamb of God. He certainly knew that as soon as he did that, Andrew and John's first choice would change. He must have known that their focus would shift from him to Jesus. Their interest would shift from him to Jesus. Their loyalty would shift from him to Jesus. Instead of helping John, they would start helping Jesus. And John not only was okay with that, he actually was happy about it. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? William Barclay says it this way. There was no jealousy in John. He had come to attach people not to himself, but to Christ. There was no harder task than to take the second place when once the first place was enjoyed. But as soon as Jesus emerged on the scene, John never had any other thought than to send people to Jesus. Chuck Swindoll says it so simply. He writes, John the Baptist was happy when people left him to follow Jesus because his ministry focused on Jesus. Think about what a remarkable man John the Baptist was. To go from first round pick, first draft round pick. First round draft pick. Man, Alan, I need your help with this one, man. This guy follows the first round draft picks. Imagine going from number one for probably several years in one instant dropping to number two. From being the man... To being simply the man in the shadows. As a father of four daughters, I've thought a lot over the years off and on about how hard it's going to be for me on my daughter's wedding days. 
when I walk each of my daughters down the aisle and they get to the top of that aisle and there's that young, better looking idiot, I mean, a nice young man standing there. And I have to physically take my daughter's hand and place it in his hand, give her a kiss on the cheek and step to the side and sit down. That is a pivotal moment for a father and for a daughter. It's a big moment. I believe that the word of God teaches us that a that a father is to be the number one man in his daughter's life until that moment. Until that moment when he is at the top of the aisle with his daughter, placing her hand into the hand of another man. I am her number one protector. I am her number one provider. I'm the number one man in her life. And I'm her spiritual leader. To whatever extent another man can be a spiritual leader of a woman. In that moment, though, I hand her over. And as I sit down, I wonder how hard that's going to be. To go from being number one to being number two, if I'm lucky, (laughs) if I'm lucky. And I'm going to do that four times over. I wonder. And it's an amazing thing for me to think about John the Baptist here. This significant moment, this powerful moment, rich with meaning and symbolism. Andrew and John heard John the Baptist speak those words, look, the Lamb of God. They wasted no time saying their goodbyes to their locust-eating rabbi, and they began following Jesus instead. And as John the Baptist watched his right-hand men walk away, he rejoiced. In verse 38, after Andrew and John had been tailing Jesus for a short while, Jesus turned around and he asked them, what do you want? More literally, his Greek question translates into English this way. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? That's a much deeper question than we might think at first glance. What are you looking for, guys? If you're looking for a military messiah to beat up and kill some Roman soldiers, I'm not, I'm not your guy. If you're looking for a rabbi that will help you get rich, I'm not your man. If you're looking for someone who will give you great popularity and someone that will send you to the road of easy street, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm not your guy. So I've got to ask you, Andrew and John, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? They answered Jesus' question with a question of their own. Rabbi, where are you staying? I, I take that to mean, Rabbi, We don't want to follow you because of your sword. We don't want to follow you because of popularity or because you'll make us rich or any of that. We simply want to follow you because we have it on good authority that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why I want to follow you. That's why we want to follow you. You're the Lamb of God. And in verse 39, Jesus responds to Andrew and John with these simple words, come. And you will see. Well, that was an offer that these two eager men couldn't refuse. So they followed Jesus to the house where he was staying. They spent the rest of the day with him. John tells us that it was the 10th hour. Uh, If he was using the Roman clock, then it means it was about 10 a.m. If he was using the Jewish way of telling time, then it was 4 p.m. Either way, 10 a.m. or 4 p.m., 
it's clear they spent the rest of the day with Jesus at his house, wherever he was staying. According to verse 40, after spending the day with Jesus, the first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And Andrew brought him to Jesus. Now, Andrew isn't talked about a lot in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when Andrew is mentioned, there are a few noteworthy characteristics about Andrew. I want to point out two of those characteristics that make Andrew a pretty remarkable young man. Number one, like his first rabbi, John the Baptist, Andrew was content taking a back seat to someone else. Like John the Baptist, he was comfortable. He was okay taking a back seat to someone else. In the Gospels, Andrew is consistently referred to as Simon Peter's brother. Even here, the first time he's introduced, he's introduced as Simon Peter's brother. Even though Andrew believed in Jesus first, even though he began following Jesus first, even though he was the one that went to Simon and convinced him to come and follow Jesus, despite all of that, Simon Peter is the one who became the lead apostle, and he was the one who was given privileges Andrew wasn't given, but Andrew seems to have been content to fill the position that Christ called him to fill. And I want to ask you this morning, are you comfortable doing the same? Sometimes you might lead someone to Christ. Moms and dads, you might lead your kids to Christ. I hope you do. Grandparents, maybe you'll lead your grandkids to Christ. And you may see that over time, even though you've been a Christian longer than they have, you've served the Lord longer than they have, and you've done things that they couldn't even imagine doing for the Lord, he may call them to do greater things than you. And are you going to be like Andrew, content, taking a back seat to what he may call others to do who came to Christ after you? I hope. Each of us can be content to fill the position that God has called us to fill. The second noteworthy character trait of Andrew, he was a man known for introducing others to Jesus. Every time we see Andrew in the Gospel of John, he's mentioned three times. Every time you see him mentioned, he's introducing others to Jesus. John shines the spotlight on Andrew, and when he does... He's always inviting someone to Jesus. Here in John 1, Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus. In John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, uh, Andrew brings a little boy with a lunch to Jesus. And you remember what Jesus does with that lunch, don't you? The five loaves and the two fish. Andrew is the one that brought the little boy to Jesus. And Jesus takes those five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000 men with it. Over in John 12, verse 22, Andrew brings some curious Greeks to Jesus. Andrew couldn't keep Jesus to himself. I hope the same could be said of us. We can't keep Jesus to ourselves. Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus here in John 1. Jesus wastes no time giving Simon a new nickname. Jesus turns to him and says, You are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, why did Jesus change Simon's name? Why did he do that? Well, in the Old Testament... A change of name oftentimes noted or marked a, a change in someone's relationship with God. Jacob, for instance, in the book of Genesis, Jacob's name, his given name at birth, means grasper of the heel. Remember, Esau was born first, his twin brother. And as Esau is being delivered, they notice baby brother still inside the womb is holding on to Esau's heel. And so when he came out second, they called him Jacob, grasper of the heel. But it figuratively means the liar or the deceiver. 
That was Jacob's name. His name was Deceiver. But then later in life, remember, he's wrestling with God one night, wrestling with the angel of the Lord, and his name is changed to come time, come the next morning, and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Israel means wrestler with God or struggler with God. And so the deceiver became the wrestler with God. And so sometimes that change of name does mark a, a different relationship with God, a, a change to that relationship. So the truth is, on his own, Simon wasn't much of a rock, was he? Sometimes he was as stubborn as a rock. Sometimes he was as dumb as a rock. But as far as noteworthy, positive character traits, the guy was no rock, was he? Interesting. Jesus says, you will now be called the rock, Peter. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because Jesus didn't just see him as he was. Jesus saw him as he could be. Jesus saw what he could become. And that's encouraging for me, and I hope it's encouraging to you. Jesus doesn't just see who you are today. He doesn't just see what everyone around you sees. He sees what you can become. He sees what you can be. And I want to say to you moms in the room, I want to thank you that you follow in Jesus' footsteps in this way. Some people at certain times in your kids' lives have looked at your kids and said, man, there's no hope for this kid. Right? Let's be honest. There is no hope for this kid. Man, this kid is messed up. This kid's got some problems. But moms, you continue to pray for your child. Some of you grandmothers, you're praying for your grandkids. Despite what you see with your eyes, you've determined long ago that you're not going to walk by faith. You're going to, excuse me, not going to walk by sight. You're going to walk by faith. And you've decided, you know what, I don't care what I see today. I don't care what I hear today. I am praying that God is going to cause into, call into being what he has created my child or grandchild to be. Praise God, moms, that so many of you follow in Jesus' footsteps in this regard. Jesus looked at Simon and just knew that he could become a rock in the church. He could become the lead apostle. No one else could see that, but Jesus could see it. He, he could walk on water. No one would have ever dreamed of that in Peter's life. He could be the one to go on to write two books of the New Testament. No one would have ever dreamed that possible. But Jesus could see it. All of that potential in Peter was realized in the years to come, but it began in the mind of Jesus Christ who saw in Simon the potential that no one else could see. It's a very Christ-like trait to see in those, especially those who are younger and maybe less experienced than you are, to see in them the potential to become something that no one else can see. I love it. Warren Wearsby, I think, says it so well. He says, it took a great deal of work for Jesus to transform weak Simon into a rock. But he did it. Thou art to thou shalt be. He is a great encouragement to all who trust Christ. Truly, he gives us the power to become. Isn't that good? You are, but you shall be. Say that with me. You are, but you shall be. He says to you today, you are, fill in the blank with your name. You are Cody. You are Ron. You are Carrie. You are Ray. You are Scotty. Fill in the blank with your name. You are, but you will be 
And I believe so often God will plant a little seed in your mind and heart of what he has called you to be, a man or a woman of God who brings much honor and glory to God. No one else may see it. Some of you in this room may end up being a pastor someday. I don't know. Some of you in this room may end up being a missionary and leading more people to Christ than I will ever lead to Christ. Some of you, God, may choose to be a simple Sunday school teacher or a greeter at the front door that plants seeds in others' hearts that draws them to Jesus Christ. And you may be the one by handing out a bulletin at a front door to reach Billy Graham of the 21st century. You never know. God can do great things in and through you if you allow yourself to be used by him. And allow him to call into being that which he has created you to be. Well, John's summary of Jesus' third day of public ministry wraps up at the end of verse 42. By the end of verse 42, Jesus has three followers who are on their way to becoming disciples. Andrew, Andrew, John, and Simon. Uh, And now let's pick up in verse 43 to see who Jesus recruits on day four. So picking up in verse 43 of John chapter one, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than these. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, on the fourth day of Jesus' first week of public ministry, he found Philip. Now, John doesn't tell us whether or not Jesus already knew Philip. Uh, We know from chapter 1, Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth, right? So obviously, he already knew Philip even before he was formed in his mother's womb. But the question is, did he ever have an interaction with Philip face to face. We're not told. Philip presumably began following Jesus immediately after Jesus called him to follow him. But as soon as he had a few spare minutes, notice what he does in verse 45. He goes to his buddy Nathaniel and he tells his buddy, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in verse 46, Nathaniel's response is famous. You might even call it infamous. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? If you got the impression that Nathaniel wasn't a big fan of Nazareth, you're right. He was not a fan. In fact, in those days up there in northern Galilee, there were these town rivalries that went on. Uh, the one that was from one podunk town didn't like the guys from the other podunk town. And, and so there was just kind of this town rivalry going on. They were discriminated against each other. They were prejudiced against each other. So Nathaniel, we know, is from another small town up there in Galilee. He didn't like Nazarenes. And it's also true he's a skeptic because he doesn't believe his buddy when his buddy tells him, we have found the Messiah. He doesn't believe him. He's a skeptic and he's prejudiced. So how does Philip respond to his friend's skepticism and bigoted comments? Does he yell at him? Does he wave his finger in his face? 
Does he say, well, you're wasting my time. I'm out of here. Forget it. I won't introduce you to the Messiah. None of that. Notice how he responds to Nathaniel. He simply says what Jesus had said the day before to Andrew. Come and see. Come and see. Don't just take my word for it. Is Jesus the one Moses and the prophets wrote about? Can the Messiah actually come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see. In John chapter 1, Jesus' fourth day of public ministry ends with Jesus' conversation with Nathanael. Jesus greets him in verse 47 by saying, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. When you think about it, it's a pretty meaningful thing that Jesus says this to Nathanael. Because remember that Nathanael was an Israelite. I told you earlier, Israel's name, his birth name was what? Jacob, which means deceiver. Okay? He's a deceiver. So he says, you are a true Israelite. That's not Jacob's birth name. That was Jacob's new name given to him by God. Israel being struggler with God, right? You are a true struggler with God. You are a true wrestler with God. You are a true Israelite. And then he follows it up. The old King James says, in whom there is no guile. In the NIV and some of the newer translations, he says, in whom there is nothing false. So catch what he's doing here. You are a true wrestler with God, a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of Jacob. But unlike your ancestor, Jacob, who is a deceiver, there is no deceit in you. So you are a wrestler with God who doesn't make the same mistakes that your ancestor Jacob made. He was a deceiver. He deceived his brother out of his birthright. Jacob deceived his father out of the number one blessing when his father was on his deathbed. And he deceived his father-in-law out of most of his flocks in order to pad his own wallet. Jacob was a deceiver through and through. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, I know you. And there is no deceit in you. Yes, you are an Israelite, but you're not falling into the same pitfalls that your ancestor did. There's nothing untrue in you. Nathaniel is taken aback. He asks in verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus responds by sharing something about Nathaniel that no mere mortal could have known. Jesus tells him how he saw him sitting alone under a fig tree. If you watch the series, The Chosen, you'll see a beautiful depiction of the calling of Nathaniel. Nathaniel's out in the middle of nowhere with a single fig tree in the middle of this field. No one around, no one in sight, no one knows he's there. He's sitting under that tree crying out in prayer to God and reading the scriptures. And so when Jesus the next day says, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the tree, there is no doubt in his mind that this must be the son of God because he looked around and made sure on that day there was no one in sight. Jesus was able to see what no mere mortal could see. And what he says here to Nathaniel, it seems pretty clear that Jesus is saying, I don't only see you physically. When you were under that tree yesterday, I actually know what you were thinking. He reveals that to Nathaniel, and that's why Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. No mere mortal could know where he had been physically, no mere mortal could have known his thoughts. Jesus finishes the conversation by making one final allusion to Jacob. Remember that in Genesis 28, as Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, who he thought wanted to kill him, 
God gave him a dream. And in that dream, you may remember, there was a ladder stretching from earth to heaven. And in that dream, Jacob saw angels ascending and descending that ladder, going up and down, up and down, ascending and descending that ladder leading to heaven. And so what is Jesus communicating here? I think he's communicating to Nathaniel. You think this is something impressive that I knew you were sitting under that tree when no one else knew it? You think this is impressive that I knew your thoughts that were going through your mind when you were sitting under that tree? Thoughts that no human being could ever know? You think that's impressive? I'm going to show you in the days to come something more impressive because I am the ladder to heaven. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jacob was given but a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. When he saw the ladder extending to heaven and angels descending and ascending back and forth, he was giving a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would come down from heaven to earth and he would bring heaven to earth and he would give us as his followers the task of bringing heaven to earth. And one day when we breathe our last and we end our lives here on earth, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we'll get to go from earth to heaven. Amen. And so Jesus alone made this possible for us to come from earth to heaven and to go from heaven to earth. Heaven has been brought down through Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we can follow him straight to heaven when we die. He is the ladder that's foreshadowed. Sometimes in theological circles, we call this a type typology. That ladder in Jacob's dream is a type of Christ. It is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of that ladder. That connects heaven and earth. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that I believe we can pull from this great passage today. I'll go through these rather quickly. Lesson number one is a lesson we can pull from John the Baptist. When your family and friends leave you to follow Jesus, let them go and be happy for them. Let them go and be happy for them. It's one of my favorite sayings that I like to share. What is good is oftentimes the enemy of what is best. What is good is oftentimes the enemy of what is best. It is good if your kids and your grandkids follow your good example. But it's better if they follow Jesus' good example. It's good if your kids and your grandkids spend time with you. It's better if they spend time with Jesus. It's good when your kids and grandkids live close to you and serve God close to home. But it's better if God puts a calling on their lives to go, that they follow the calling of Jesus Christ on their lives. This is hard stuff, especially for those of us who are parents to bear. But ultimately, as much as I hope that one day that my wife and I will get to live close to our kids and our grandkids and spend time together on a Mother's Day, all get together and holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving. I want to be close to my kids. I want to be close to my grandkids. But if God puts a calling on one of my kids or grandkids' life to go and do something for him that they cannot do as effectively close to me, then I have to do what John the Baptist did. I have to let him go and rejoice As they go, that sometimes is the hardest part of all. Rejoice as they go. Ultimately, I I want them to follow my good example. But I'd much rather them follow Christ's good example. Because his example is so much better than mine. Lesson number two. A lesson from Andrew and Philip. 
one of the most loving things you could ever say to a friend is come and see. Come and see. Rarely does anyone get debated into heaven. Rarely will you ever argue someone into getting saved. So let's take a lesson from Andrew and Philip. Bring your brother to Jesus and let him see for himself. Bring your friend to Jesus and let her see for herself. What does that look like? Well, invite them to church. Invite them to church. We've got a new Bible study starting this week. Invite them to the Bible study. We've got a a bunch of the flyers out front on the table. Grab some flyers. Invite them to a Bible study. Maybe they're, you know, a little uneasy coming into a church service on a Sunday morning. This is not a scary place to be. It's one of the reasons we like that this isn't a particularly churchy looking place where we're meeting because we can reach people that are scared to death to walk inside anything that looks churchy. But some people are still scared to go to a church service. So why not invite them to a Bible study? Invite them to come and see. You don't have to debate them into Christianity. You don't have to argue them into salvation. Just invite them to come and see. Just invite them. One way or another, love them. By inviting them to come and see Jesus for themselves. By the end of the fourth day of Jesus' first week of public ministry, he had six followers. John the Baptist, Andrew, John, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. He had six. And I wonder, by the end of this service today, if there'll be a few more. Wouldn't that be awesome? Jesus had six by the end of those two days of ministry. What if he had a few more after this service today? I wonder in the months to come... How many more followers of Jesus that this church will be able to help witness coming to Christ? Finally, lesson number three, and this is a lesson from Jesus. Jesus alone knows who you are today and who you can become tomorrow. So don't let people, even yourself, define who you are. Find your identity in Christ both today and tomorrow. There's not much more I could say about that. Find your identity in Christ. Sometimes the biggest hindrance to us doing what Christ has called us to do is ourselves. Sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. And Christ calls me to do something, and it's not my wife who is dissuading me from doing what he's called me to do. It's not my kids. It's not my friends. It's not our church. It's me. So do not find your identity in anything other than Jesus Christ. And don't just settle for finding your identity in him today. Find your identity in him tomorrow. Because he is the one who created you in your mother's womb, who numbered your days who set out before the beginning of time a plan for your life, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope and a future. Find your identity in Christ, both today and tomorrow. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you especially for our moms in this room today. Would you encourage them, O God? Father, maybe you are calling some of them to let go. I think of that glorious verse in the Psalms. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man or 
in this case, mom, whose quiver is full of them. Lord, I know these moms and also the dads in this room, Lord, have spent many years sharpening the arrow tips on their children, straightening the shaft, placing the feathers, preparing them for flight. And I pray, O God, that as you call us to draw back that bowstring and let our kids fly and soar for Christ, that we would be humble enough and bold enough to do that. To do what John the Baptist did. To say, there he is. There's Jesus, the Lamb of God. Follow him. I pray that you would transform the hearts and the lives of our kids and grandkids. Set their hearts ablaze for Christ. Use him in greater ways than we have ever imagined. Do in their lives extraordinary things that no one in Billy Graham's family would have imagined you being able to do through him. Just like in Simon's life, Lord, you called him to be a rock and you called him to do things that no one in his life would have imagined he could ever do. Would you do similar things in the lives of our family members, especially our kids and grandkids? Would you help us, Lord? to send them where you want them to go, to pray for them and encourage them every step of the way. Help us to live for you, Lord Jesus, and bring you a glory and honor with our lives. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, as our heads are still bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner, and I need you to be my Savior. Lord Jesus, please forgive my sin. Please wash my sin away and help me to follow you with all my heart. I promise to follow you for the rest of my life and place you in the driver's seat of my life beginning today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, if you're bold enough to confess him as your Savior and Lord, repent of your sins, It's time to be baptized. And we here at Impact always want to be ready. When you've decided to trust in Christ, confess Him as Savior and repent of your sins, we always want to be ready to baptize you, making it clear that you are buried with Christ and raised to walk a brand new life following Him. If you have that decision to make, Alan's going to be up front here at the end of the service. I'm going to ask Rosie if you come up as well. You let us know if we can pray for you today. We're going to close with a a final song today, so I'm going to ask that you be standing. And once again, moms, I do ask that you make your way outside to the little uh, reception area. It's going to be a a great little reception, some coffees, some pastries, some wonderful ways to celebrate. We also had someone uh, pick some lemons off the tree yesterday, and so lemons are available over there for moms. And I thought that was very symbolic, right, because moms are specialists at turning lemons into lemonade, right? My mom's an example of doing that. And so praise God for that. I hope you stay for a few minutes and enjoy that. Yes, ma'am. We didn't do communion. Well, I'm glad you're standing for us to take communion together. Can someone get me communion? I forgot to grab mine and bring it up here. Thank you so much. Happy Mother's Day. For those of you who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, 
We take of the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was given for us on the cross. Take a moment and search your mind and heart, asking for the forgiveness of Christ for the sins you've committed this past week. of that bread together. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And let's focus on the juice representing the blood of Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord Jesus, please cover us in that blood. Wash us clean in the blood of the Lamb. You said, do this in remembrance of me.